You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with Arthur Morosky. He is a successful media entrepreneur and investor with an international track record of building successful technologies, enterprises, and strategic partnerships that have resulted in several mergers and acquisitions. His career has been defined by his pioneering new technologies that spearheaded new industries. On today's show, we talk about advice on negotiating the sale of your company, how ChatGPT is disrupting all of Silicon Valley, how can a company's mistake end up being a pivotal part in its success, when is it time to sell your company, and more. All right, now let's start this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. All right. So welcome, everyone, to this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. First, I want to thank Rebecca, who made the introduction to today's guest that allowed today's episode to happen. And with that, well, we have a special guest today, Arthur Murawski. I'm glad I got the name right. Right on. Well, his career, I'm going to say, spans pretty much all of the history you could think of Silicon Valley. And- Okay, okay. I'm very excited for today's episode, so let's just dive right into it. Arthur, can you tell us a little bit about your career up until this point? Well, it's so convoluted that it'll be hard, but I'll try to zip through it as quickly as I can. I came from Poland, and the 80s were the first original solidarity time where Poland went through the turbulent change. And my father was a computer scientist and Prior to Solidarity, he was allowed to go outside of the Iron Curtain. So he went to London, Paris, and the rest of the family was held hostage, right? We could not go anywhere. And in the 80s, when the Solidarity came about into for a little bit of a window of freedom, we were allowed to apply for the passports. And I was 18 at the time. I waited for nothing and I just got the passport. Extremely happy that I got it because it was impossible to get prior to that time. Then I sold everything that I had because Poland was a poor country at the time. And in order for me to travel, I had to have a minimum $150, which on average, everybody was making about like $10, $15 a month. So that was a lot, a lot of cash that I needed to raise. So I sold all my LPs, all my vinyl albums, anything that had a value, got my 150 bucks and I flew over to Austria. And then from there, through all kinds of different turbulations, I was able to emigrate to the United States. And I came here when I was exactly 19 years old, directed to San Francisco during this big El Nino. So this El Nino, like we're feeling right now in 1982, was pretty like, a huge, huge storms every day. And that's what I remember from those days. But anyways, my father, computer scientist, kind of pulled me by my ears and say, you can't really just join the U.S. society, you have to go through school and then learn how to program computers. And then he moved me down to San Diego, where first he kind of made up my lost time at school when I was kind of immigrating. It was like a year and a quarter. And then I started to learn C programming and also COBOL language, because that's was my father's favorite computer language. So, But in any event, while I was at college, there I was approached by a fellow starter up a company called Meridian Data. And Meridian Data was making this giant refrigerator size machinery, literally, that allow one to create CD-ROMs. 
And they were like a premier company because at the time, the size of the data, the hard drives, you can only store like up to 32 megabytes versus the CD-ROMs were 650 megabytes, which was a holy grail of that time. That was like internet times 100 because the big hard drives that you had in a lot of data rooms, say at the banks or whatever, they had those cake giant hard disks that were five megabytes in space, just in comparison. But Meridian Data gave me a huge break because they were on the cutting edge of the technology at the time. So companies like Sun Microsystem, Microsoft, Apple, everybody needed this new storage that will enable them to both allow the customers to reach out and then freeze their databases and make them available to the customers. And then at one point in time, the company had moved us from San Diego, which I really loved, down to Scotts Valley, which... It was a good place, but I didn't have as much as appreciation to that as I do right now. Because I was always like a big boy city. Like I live in the big cities and San Diego was fantastic. But living in Scotts Valley was just a different trip. But anyways, during this the time of the Meridian Data, I've learned how to code. And I've actually started to appreciate the fact of the multimedia because that was the first storage that allow you to put up like a pictures, right? There was no internet at the time. There was a Prodigy or you have a CompuServe. There was no, none of the current services existed, right? So in any event, back in the 1990, around that time, we, Meridian Data was offered up for sale and then the groups went different directions and eventually got sold to MacStore and then to IBM. They make like really cool products and but it was after five-year run, great experience, understanding how to develop the code, how to, how to position the product. So that was a good experience. And then I got hired by a group of Sony Electronic Publishing, which was a division down in Monterey. And then you may ask, why in Monterey? And it had to do with Mr. Narita, which was still alive. And then he was an avid golfer. He'd love the Pebble Beach. So, so we were like, our division was the coolest one out there <laughs> next to the airport, just literally stone throw. And in our division, we were doing all the coolest projects. So I personally was responsible for creating a tool which enabled the programmers to, not programmers, but publishers, I would say, to take a QuickTime, large QuickTime files, which was the, at the time was a QuickTime 1.0 right? And then it allowed them to share the data, both on IBM computers, the PC computers and the Mac. So I invented something that was called hybrid formatter. It was the name of the product. So I won like a golden little hearts from my management up way up there in the, it at the Sony headquarters. And then essentially I was running a couple of other things because they allowed me to participate directly with both Microsoft, Apple at the time on designing new things and then approaching like creating tools for them. And then I was also responsible for putting up the first ever digital videos. And at the time there were 120 pixels by 90 pixels. And then we actually double sized them to make sense and then you had 10 frames a second real real ugly but because of sony had access to all of the columbia stuff and sony music we were making michael jackson's f first videos right and catalog of different things it was a lot of fun 
But on the side, I asked my manager at Sony and I said, hey, listen, I got this producer director from in, in Santa Cruz. Can you can we put his film like a, as a continuous interactive movie? And then the, the management said, no, don't do it. It's not a good idea. Right. But I did it anyways. I did it on my spare time. I had some consulting company and then we created this film called 600 Days to Cocos Island. And our competitor, Encyclopedia Britannica people that were distributing the films, picked up and then sent me a purchase order for 5,000 units at $70, roughly $69.95, which is, I don't know, I don't know the math, but it was a lot of money. And of course, Sony found out, they called me to the office and say, hey, Arthur, what are you doing? You're moonlighting on our equipment and then you're selling the product or a competitor. We're not going to fire you, but we're going to buy you, your company, your purchase orders. We're going to start new company. And that was the end of my corporate world. I mean, it's just like I sold them the company. We created another kind of like CD-ROM publishing business. So, and after that company was called Runbook Publishing. And so we had two Sony execs and myself. And eventually the Sony execs raised a bunch of money for sure. But at the same time, they they didn't have that startup mentality of understanding that you need to be cautious with the money. And then one of them really liked the Who, like the band The, the Who. Band, the Who? Yeah. And so so they decided to create a CD-ROM, Tommy Duroc Opera. And then a lot of our resources, we, we raised about two million bucks. And then I remember there was a bill for $500,000 for just like live transmission between Hard Rock Cafe in Satellite Link with the, one, of the, one of the guys from Who and us doing some kind of a press release, which was pretty stupendous, but it was what it was. But eventually that disintegrated and I went into to becoming my own CEO and I created a company called Media Galleries. And Media Galleries, I did the Grammy Awards, I did Encyclopedia on Chopin, a bunch of things that were really well fitted for the medium, right? And eventually, my biggest luck, I, I think, in, in that time was the DVD came about and I was really well prepared because all the Apple people that, that actually were building the tools, they were my friends, I knew it ahead of time and I loved it because... All of a sudden, all the pictures, all the movies, all the 10 frames a second or 15 frames a second kind of go away, right? And internet wasn't ready yet because internet, remind you of those days that they, if you had a 25 megabits a second connection, you were lucky, right? So in any event, so, so I was the first guy to actually create the first uh, DVDs that was very pricey because at the time that all the tooling and everything was just like then hundreds of thousands of dollars, both the license of the software plus the all the encoders and such. But in the little studio in Santa Cruz, we were doing about 20 or 30 films every quarter for Hollywood, like making, converting things. So, so it was kind of like post-production house, I would say. But then I ventured off and I did my own like production of the Bach, his music, his life, where we had a Stanford musicologist to record on original organs that the Bach had played. We recorded with the Dolby Digital, five channel, that multi-camera thing. So we did that. Unfortunately, it was a little bit ahead of its time because I remember I went to the last Comdex that was like big show before CES in Las Vegas that was dedicated to the computers. And there was like two companies that could play the DVD. So it was kind of funny. But in any event, eventually I ran into this other company called Netflix that was just, just around the corner. I was in Aptos. Those guys were in, in Scotts Valley. And w which was the most funny thing is that the company Meridian Data that moved me from San Diego 
this God's Valley was in exactly the same building as Netflix rented the offices. So it's kind of like a little bit of deja vu. But anyways, I met the guy named Mitch Law. He, Mitch in, at Netflix was the content guy. So the original team was Reed Hastings and Mark Randolph. Like they were co-founders of the Netflix. How big was Netflix at this point when you met them? They were literally in probably in the room of the size plus some, right? For our audience listening, that's about a 20 by 40 foot room, I'd say. Yeah, so, so it was really small. And then the way that we've met is that Mitch was, at the time, he was the director of VSDA. And VSDA was the, the organization that, that was dealing with all of the video rental stores. He was like a very important person, but he lived in Mill Valley. And then he was coming into Scott's Valley to Netflix for four days a week. So he was ahead of his time, right? So he had this deal with Mark and Reed. And during the which time, when it was, well, let's say, on Wednesday, he was bored, right, to tears, because it was like not much going on. I mean, it's he's got family in Mill Valley and think, uh, no action in, 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 say, in Scotts Valley. So I was meeting with him every other Wednesday. It depends. And then we were talking about technology, and then I'd show him that I'm fully capable of making the DVDs. And it just turned on the light in his head because he figured we have so much. We've been trying to gain awareness of the Netflix's brand, but it was very difficult. They were including the little coupons into the DVD players from Toshiba, Sony, wherever. And then they actually lost a bunch of monies because they somebody learned how to cheat the codes and they got more free DVDs than they had some issues. Wait, so at this time, though, that was when Netflix was mailing two DVDs. At a that's time. correct. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, it was like, two, and then I've, I don't want to misquote anybody, but he told me that a lot of good revenues that was coming in was from the Indian, like engineers here in the, in the Valley, but they were renting Bollywood movies and they were like really good customers. And then they got a lot of cash from that. But that's like, a, like some kind of a quote that I have never verified because I didn't have a preview to it. But in any event, we were discussing it and then they really wanted Netflix need, needed to like jump. They didn't have a lot of money. They need to get some PR campaign that will make the name more national, right? So I proposed to, to Mitch at the time that we will do the Rolling Stone concert live. There was a Steel Wheels concert and there was a big tour. So we were talking with the management to capture something on, let's say, concert on Friday. And then the following Friday, which is one week time, we will have those DVDs in the hands of the Netflix's users. But we ran into the wall. But to clear all the rights, it was just impossible, <laughs> right? And then something funny landed. The President Clinton had a problem with Emmanuel Lewinsky. And then we figured, hey, why don't we do the DVD testimony of the President Clinton? We know that it was coming up, that they're going to release it. We didn't know what the length of the D video is going to be. But the traditional VHS, in order for them to make enough of the VHSs, that would take them a month or two to make that happen, right? And then and DVD was actually even longer process because usually you would have about six to eight weeks if you're lucky to get the DVDs. But I've personally challenged myself and I said, we're going to do it in one week. 
And and of course, like the major replicators of DVDs told us, no, you're not going to be able to do it because so and so. So there was like a big player, Cineram, Technicolor. They were like the premier guys that were doing all the DVDs for major studios. But then I found this Chinese company that just moved from Taiwan here and they were here in Fremont. And I talked to them and said, hey, and the guy said, hey, no problem. You bring me the ready master and then we'll, we'll make it into the DVD. We can get you the first. 10,000 or 5,000 of this guy, I don't remember, like in the 24 hour from the moment we get a DLT. So I had that figured out. But then what we didn't have figured out is that essentially the disc itself, it was designed for two hours of video. And then we were trying to cram in four hours of video. So we had like, we didn't sleep for, let's say, five days, but we made it happen. We actually got the DLT. How'd you compress the files at that time? Well, actually, there was a company in the valley called Minerva, Minerva Networks, and they were experimenting. They were the best in terms of having the best encoders and they had some south korean guys that were just genius but gee we had encoders on fire all kinds of different things but we made it mitch was actually doing the chapter marks he created 99 chapter marks which was the maximum allowable and then we made it it was ready so but we didn't have a time to make a label on it on the disc itself so it was coming as a white donut like and they call it white lies for two dollars you can two cents you can buy it so yeah it was actually phenomenal success because we wound up having all the media we needed right washington post the wall street journal we got the cnn i mean just all of a sudden netflix was everywhere because they beat up the whole system right so because of monica Lewinsky and the bill clinton scandal that's kind of a huge pivot point in the netflix history (laughs) Pretty much so. <laughs> but me, finish. But so, so it's all cool. And then about one week later, I think that Mark calls me or Mitch calls me and I say, hey, we're in deep trouble. I mean, so what's up? And he says, well, listen, some of the discs, and then they stuck them up on the spindle, right? Because they never wanted to have any boxes for packaging. And then we didn't have any label. It was just like white donut. And they were called white lights. So eh, it worked. And then it turned out, that factory, the Chinese factory, they mixed up the 125 discs that went to Washington, D.C., okay? And they were all porn. But they were not only bad porn, they were like no warning of any kind. And then just literally you had some kind of a not pleasant scene and then the red lights, (laughs) panic. So I called Jimmy, I remember back then, and the guy that was owner of that factory. I said, Jimmy, we have a problem. You guys mixed up the discs. And then Jimmy said, hey, Arthur, Netflix no pay. When they pay? I said, no, don't worry about pay. You, you worry about your house in Fremont, right? <laughs> it's just, it's a different type of a problem. But in any event, I think that what they did, what Netflix did at the time, they offered every customer that got the disc because they knew where they send it roughly, right? They said, if you send it back, we'll give you a free DVD player. And at that time, they, they were pretty expensive, right? Anywhere from three to 600 bucks. They were not cheap <laughs> devices. So in today's world, they, they were like $2,000 a disc kind of offers. So from a hero, I kind of went into a Polish Chinese pornographer in the <laughs> Reed's mind, right? So Do you get more publicity because of that. No, I think it's a kind of a nice, a nice anecdote right now. But <laughs> but my friendship with with at least Mitch is is to the date. He went through all kinds of ups and ups and downs. He actually after Netflix when did their IPO, he started Redbox. 
So so he was like going head to head with Netflix. He was a rival for Wait, quite some time. Why do yeah. you do that? When you take like 2005, it wasn't like today that we know the Netflix as a giant company. They were doing this roller coaster thing for quite some time. And I'm in the full admiration of Reed that he was able, like, because he's a super solid guy, by the way, that he was able to go through the peaks and then and go negative 50 and then go back up, right? And then still sustain the company and then make it be what it is. But in 2005, I don't think that there, there was that many people believing that the one share of the Netflix is going to be that much money. Talking about it too, is I was a startup too, because my company was called Media Galleries at the time. And then we're, So you were at Netflix's and no, had a side company? No, I had my own company. Oh. They hired me to do all the work. And so I had a budget for making this giant project, right? Giant. But it was something that nobody thought that was possible to do. So, but in any event, one thing that happened is that one quarter of the monies that were owned to me, they asked me, hey, we're a poor company. Can we do deal after deal with you, Arthur? And deal after deal, I don't know if it's from Godfather movie or what. I just said, fine. Because to me, I, I was appreciative of getting work in the first place. And then I talked with Mark Randolph the other day, and I said, where's my money? <laughs> because I'm just joking. But, you know, I was doing the math and I saying at the time, the stock of the uh, of the Netflix was this much money. And then if you multiply that by number of shares, I could have bought, right? <laughs> this was 2005 or is this? No, it was 1998. Oh. They, were in a, they were more like 50 cents a, a share. But anyways, so that's the story. And, and I've been also providing the Netflix with my product. I eventually, I started a company called MGE later on. I sold the media Galleries to this whole company to one of the Apple former Apple exec, and then he was actually doing all post production work, which is it was a tough job, and then I was more adventurous, so so I created a film distribution company, and I was one of, one of the first guys that was supplying Netflix with the films, like on DVD. I was trying to do also the later in the streaming, but I wasn't happening. So that was the thing with the with the Netflix, and in like in 2008, I started with one of the one of the GPs partners of the Deutsche Telekom, Franz Helbig, a German guy. He started a law fund called Silicon Hill Ventures. Eventually, I got tired of all the commotion in the media business because it was good, but very unpredictable, right? And I did that, and then we founded a number of companies, holographic advertising company, then eventually France went back to Germany, and then I had Mitch to help me out with funding the companies that, like the startups that I was funding. And then, and I don't know, I've done so many companies, <laughs> it's just hard to, hard to recollect. So I'm gathering all the data right now, and Trying to get like a wiki page. So so at least it's documented for my kids. So question with all these companies. Before this interview, did a ton of research. We had a great conversation. You seem to really build and sell and build and sell in. Why not build and hold? Well, I think that I have good golden retriever attention span. I, it's not for me. It's some people, I think that I have the greatest life on the planet. So I'm not complaining. But once I learn something, I get worn out. I just... Don't want it. It gets boring. I, I need a challenge. I need to get new and new. Now I'm older. I don't want it to waste too much of my time because I see things like I've been doing things ahead of time, 10 years, five years window, understanding the technology. So now I'm not just jumping up and down when I see this shiny new object, but trying to get focused. But before I, I, I couldn't. It's just like against my own nature, unfortunately. 
Okay, so with the selling of the companies, though, you had to have a lot of negotiations with people on the other side of the table, either in the investment bankers or the strategic, whoever wanted to acquire. For our listeners out there that are growing companies to one day exit or currently maybe possibly in, in the process, any suggestions or advice on how to negotiate the best deals for the seller, for the entrepreneur? Well, the only thing that I can tell you, it's so intimate, right? I mean, I don't know, like people have different desires. And I think that I'm probably the worst person to give them the advice because you're Sean, you're absolutely right. I should have hang around to round C or IPO, right? Or like some serious M&A. I just didn't do that. But the good news is, and that's not advice to your audience because I don't have any, is that I've raised the kids that are also very entrepreneurial. And for some reason, they know. <laughs> I have no clue. It's all about, you know, you're too truthful. But, you know, hold your cards. Don't get excited, right? Take your sweet time. That would be the only advice that I would give to any entrepreneur that wants to get the best deal out there. And then the fact that somebody take, invites you to the table for negotiation, that means that they the other party is really interested because nobody wants to waste the time, right? So ask around and then do your research. And then I think that one, one of the good things that one could do to truly understand the value of the business is to utilize some of the tools that are available. Maybe they're not available to everybody, but like pitch book, right? Just go and ask somebody and even pay them the money. For our audience out. out there, PitchBook is this database that has a ton of information on institutional investors, angels, VCs, private equity, has listed trans transactions, a ton of history. So it's that data subscription to this amazing data set. Exactly. So, so even if you spend a little bit of money, you will understand what your competitors, how much money they've raised with seed, who was the... Yeah. So, so that that would be one hopefully good advice. I like it. Pitchbook is incredible. I get to. I'm not sure if it's a good thing that I get to use it all the time or a curse in the way that you spend a lot of hours on it. But there's so much great information on it. Of all the companies you started, and it was mentioned before, a lot of them are five, ten years ahead of where the industry, where the world is, not even ready for it. Was there any in particular that were didn't go as expected? Were kind of letdowns? or the exact opposite that surpassed any of your wildest dreams? Well, I'd say the early times when I was like a 30, 40 years old, that they're from, I don't want to reveal my age, but it was a little bit, quite a little bit of time, you know, not too long ago. <laughs> Arthur, you mentioned uh, learning cobalt. Uh, unless, unless, so, <laughs> you're, uh, unless you're at a bank now, maybe, you know. <laughs> But anyways, I'd say that the most fun that I had was with the media galleries, for sure. Because I've traveled the world. I've actually I've established the first interactive magazine in Europe. It was so much fun. It was fun, money, and that, that was probably the best time of my life. But now I'm actually doing even better. Because with all the experience, I can put the things together very quickly, assemble the team. I know pretty much everybody on my Rolodex, anybody from... This from the fintech, from from investment banking, from family offices and engineers. I know like thousands that are good friends solving different problems. So, yeah, right, right now I, I always feel excited, to be honest with you. I'm a golden retriever. I forget. It's just like good times all the time. Okay, then with that, what are you kind of working on now? So one of the privileged things that I have been doing in the past few years is going to meetings with on the island, to Richard Branson Island, 
And then I, where I met. What the, are those meetings like? I've never gone to a tent. Yeah, I've never gone. gone. <laughs> so, so they're fun. There's like a two, there's one specific that has to do with Bill Tai that he organizes a kite, one of those kite meetings that they have in June. And then a lot of companies from Valleys are being in, invited. Mine was the one that I'm going to is mostly related to tennis and entrepreneurship and so on. And that's the coolest one. For me, because I love tennis and actually had, that's how I wound up being on, on, on the island. But in any event, I had this company that was introduced to me called Enzo Rings. And then Enzo is creating the silicone rings that like people are wearing right, right now. And they were sitting across the table with me and I actually had a Mitch, the Netflix guy with me. He wanted to meet Richard. So we, just, we had great time. And then so Enzo was telling me about their product. And I said, that's really like pretty dumb wearing a ring like with no electronics. And they said, I, they challenged me and I said, Arthur, if you really think that you can do something better, tell us, right? And then so following on the CES, we met after Necker, we met together and then created joint venture called Luptronic. And then what we've done is essentially I've designed a bunch of electronics into in, into the ring that allows you for access control. And then actually Enzo had proved me wrong because they're just fantastically successful guys. They're licensing, like they're putting up the rings with the Star Wars and Lord of the Rings, you name it. Disney loves them. So in any event, we I got the I solidified the patent for the for the whole technology, and right now I'm just like plowing through it, getting that thing done, and then also working on another ring that is kind of like specifically for some kind of a medical condition to get a sensor, but that's a different like a different story altogether. And so between those two projects, and then advising to the young entrepreneurs and helping them out understand the valley, that's eighty. 5% of my time. What about Silicon Hill Ventures? Is that still happening? And if so... It's still happening. The Silicon Hill Ventures, we closed the we distributed monies back to the original founders. And then utilizing right now is as a vehicle to help out startups, like educating them on how to raise the where to go to and all of the, everything, including go to this particular lawyer, to start up your company, if you have a, if you're super ambitious, you go to Wilson Sonsini. If not, I have my NYU guy in New York, and then he's a professor, but he's also and also podcaster. He does his own podcast. He's a podcaster, he's yeah, a he's, guy. A, he's a fantastic guy. And so I'm sending them to the right lawyers, and then I tell them how to structure the company, how not to worry about it. I'm explaining to them a lot of times on what's going on in between like a human factor, let's put it this way, right? Because a lot of startups, the biggest challenge is the interactions of, between the founders. And then nothing happens really until the money is on the table, right? Either through the exit or first big round of monies, right? Then the weird things happen. So I'm kind of like preparing them up for all the different aspects of being in a startup environment. And going back, you'd meet you now over the span of your career are built relationships with engineers. You've built relationships with these people and that people, but you also mentioned investors and I think family offices. Right. What has been your experience with family offices? And I think that's something that we really haven't covered much on this show, but I would say it's becoming more and more important in Silicon Valley, the getting an investment or going out and reaching out to family offices. Yeah, I think so too. There's incredible 
number of wealthy individuals that are congregating around the family office offices. And then the way they do it, the way that it's organized, there's like probably hundreds of them really. And then one is better than the other, depending on what it is that you one wants to tries to do. But essentially the way that it works, that the group of wealthy individuals they usually invest the monies in their vertical of their knowledge of expertise, right? And they get, they do the screening of the deal flow. Once a month, they send their managers to kind of understand what's going on. And I think that those meetings are happening Yeah, you know, every month. There is, in San Francisco, there is probably like 50 of them or 100. And unlike the venture capital, they're less visible and kind of probably more difficult to understand how to get into those circles. But in, in reality, they're pretty pretty straightforward. There, there's no, no mystery to it, right? And for example, there is life science, fintech, a lot of real estate people are still, that, that's probably real estate has been always like a big topic. Energy, new energy, renewables. So, so they go for two days and talk about those things. And they review the deal flows, they, they review the analytics, and they go for dinners. And it's a very pleasant experience, I would say. For one, to get accustomed to the way that you could potentially get, get your company out there to be considered for funding. Although family office is not like early stage friendly, I would say. You, a lot of times you hear the pre-revenue is like a deal killer. But at the same time... Yeah, for example, my company, Looptronic and IoTHX, we found through the family offices direct connection to DARPA. And it was not here or there, but all of a sudden they said, hey, we wanted to use this for this, right? Oh, that's interesting. And then one technology that right now is kind of sweeping the world in every conversation here, it seems, chat GPT. In the sense of a futurist, what are your thoughts of artificial intelligence right now, generative AI? Are we just at the cuff? Are we seeing where do you think it will take us in the coming year? Or if it's not something that we want to dive into, we can go right to the next question because I got a few others that I really want to talk to you about and we're coming up on time. Sure. Uh, yeah, I am blown away with the chat GPT. I sometimes deliver. When I saw it the first time, I did not believe it, right? Typed it in and actually I put my 20 bucks into set up a real account so I don't have to wait. And to me, I already see the new form of interfacing. So you know how you have the SaaS platform, right? Software as a service. I'm pretty sure that there's going to be a million of those nice plugins, right? That'll be plugging in like every software will have this plugin directly in, into the chat GPT. And they're going to be making a ton of money. That's the biggest revolution that I've seen personally, bigger than the, the itself. I think that this is fantastic. I, I'm super excited about it. Really? Why do you think it's bigger than the internet? I mean, of course, without the internet, it wouldn't happen, right? Yeah. So I can't say that. But I, I miss the internet. I miss the opportunity to be part of it be, before it blow up. And I I was too into the DVD being the greatest thing. But I see that the way that the software works, the whole ability to have a trillion of connected nodes that are making reasonably good decisions. And for example, I'm a, English is my second language. And then I, I was always suffering from not being able to write. I missed the articles, this, that, and whatever. And with this chat, chat GPT, I typed it in, write me a proposal. Boom. <laughs> so that I ran through another AI grammarly, right? Just clean it up. 
And I was as clean as a newborn baby in the terms of pristinely good, technically good. And to me, that's the enormous invention. But I, I see not on a personal level, I see that as the as something that it's going to come out like a SaaS as a software where you're going to be plugging in. And I think that a lot of computer programming, it's going to be demystified, meaning that a lot of code is going to be written by, by like the, those kind of services. And yeah, it's kind of unfortunate. And then, and our current programmers are going to be more like a mechanics, like trying to put up loose screws here and there, but not being involved in an actual coding coding as we know it now. All right. And last question before wrapping up for new entrepreneurs out there from your years and years of experience, what advice, recommendation, takeaways for wrapping up would you like to, to bestow upon them? One thing. It's to never give up. It's just like a rock band. To, to a degree, the new guys here that are doing this entrepreneurial stuff, I always compare them to the rock stars. When you look at the rock stars, minus the drinking and other activities, right? It's a hard work. None of those rock stars would, would ever happen unless they will be trying on multiple times. And I think that when you think about the young kids, they have to understand that getting rejection, it's just like selling things door to door initially, but eventually the door will open up and, and they have to be patient because that door will open up and it will change their life. And then I think that they will be in control of their own destiny. And that's the biggest reward out there on the planet Earth right now, as I know it. All right. And with that, Arthur, if anyone wants to find out more information about you, what you're working on, what's the best way to go about doing it? I'd say... So it's like DVDR handle on Instagram and I don't use Twitter much, but those are my things and always invite anybody to, to DM me. And I truly wanted to thank you for, for finding the time to learn, yeah, to listen to my stories. All right. We'll have that link in the show notes. So go to our website, the Silicon Valley podcast.com and you'll find this episode in our archives. Also, when I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley podcast, I'm an investment banker focused on mergers, acquisition, growth capital, and secondaries. Please connect with me on my LinkedIn, Sean Flynn. And once again, go to thesiliconvalleypodcast.com. And with that, I want to thank Arthur. Thank you for taking the time to be on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.